more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Welcome, welcome. It is the top of the hour. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. And I'm Miriam Lipton. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students at over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and our and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Caroline Hernandez from the Department of Microbiology. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, thanks for having me. Hi. So Caroline works with mice and is trying to figure out how cells in the gut interact with cells in the stomach through oh, something. The brain. The brain. The brain. <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> That's my bad. <laughs> you know, sometimes scripts are great and sometimes... Yeah. Uh, anyways, yes, cells in the gut interact with cells in the brain uh, through something called the gut-brain axis. So, Carolyn, can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Give us a little intro. Yeah, so um, I guess a little bit of vague history. Uh, we used to think that the um, information would kind of move sort of like a top-down fashion where things would, signals would be sent from the brain to the rest of our body. And in some cases, that is what happens. Um, however, now we're learning more that... Well, sometimes that happens like what? Like So like um, in terms of... Like a know, muscle, right? Yeah, or like something? a reflex like if, or something. Okay. And even then, that's going to go like sort of up and then down. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> but... Um, now we're learning more that is this is a more uh, bi-directional communication. So um, specifically, we have cells in our gut um, responding to stimuli as well and communicating and talking to our brain. So you're saying that cells in the stomach are giving signals to the brain and the brain says, OK, I'm going to do something now. Yeah, yeah. It could also just be like um, cells in the gastrointestinal tract in general. So the oh, okay. gastrointestinal tract uh, encompasses everything from your mouth to your anus. Um, and so it can include the stomach, the esophagus, the small or the large intestines. And so we specifically are looking at how cells in the small intestine, the proximal small intestine, or sort of the part closest to the stomach. Okay, so like that the upper part the or something, right? Yeah. And one thing our listeners may be familiar with as it's been kind of a bit of a hot topic in the last couple of years is part of this gut-brain axis includes the gut microbiome, um, which is the bacteria that live in your gut. So, so how, do those, how do those factor in yeah. to this communication? 
Yeah, so um, we often hear about the term the gut-brain access, and sometimes people say the microbiota gut-brain access. Uh, So it takes into consideration all of the microbes, whether those are bacteria, archaea, or um, fungi that exist in our gut. Um, So These are things that happen when we're born, right? We just have them, and we don't have to do anything to get them. Um, so yeah, for for some of the microbes that we have, we call them, we consider them like endogenous. So they naturally exist within our gut. Okay. Um, but you can also um, they can also be affected by environmental circumstances. So um, some microbes um, might be uh, more active, or um, you might have more of those microbes if you say eat a certain diet or. Um, if you are exposed to antibiotics, you might instead have yeah. a loss of microbes. I, th- um, I think even the birth method can affect yeah, your microbiome, yeah. whether you're born by cesarean section or, or a natural yeah. delivery. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. so sort of our, our first exposure to a lot of our microbes is uh, when we're born. So as we're uh, depending on how we enter this world, whether it's through the vaginal canal or through C-section, we're being exposed to microbes in a certain way. Oh, interesting. I feel like I've heard of the appendix has like E. coli or something and... Maybe that's crazy. I don't know if that's Who knows? Right. I'm unfortunately uh, yeah. not an yeah. appendix person. <laughs> no, you're not. Okay. <laughs> um, so, but, but what you do study is um, certain sensory cells in the gut that you, you kind of talked about earlier that might communicate bidirectionally with the brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we study these sensory cells in... Um, specifically the small intestine. And just a little bit of background information, you probably are wondering what in the world is a sensory cell. So a sensory cell is just going to be um, a cell that can take in outside stimuli. So whether that's like what you taste, see, smell, or touch, or how you perceive temperature, and it'll send those signals to the brain, usually as electrical signals. Mm. Okay, and then it tells Mm -hmm. it something. Yeah, yeah, and so we're really interested in specifically the sensory cells in the gut, um, how they respond to microbial species that exist in the gut, and how they might be communicating with the brain through uh, something that's known as the vagus nerve, which is in itself a sensory nerve. Gotcha, gotcha. And you are, I don't, I actually don't think we said this, you are a first year PhD student in whose lab? I am. <laughs> I am in Maud, uh, Dr. Maud David's lab. And for uh, our listeners, I do know what lab she's in because we're in the same lab. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the the sensory, uh, the, this, this gut brain access and these yeah. micro, microbiota, they can control things like mood and behavior. Is that is that like what you're looking at in cognition or is there a specific? Yeah, yeah. So um, these microbiota can impact just a multitude of things. So um, microbes in the gut have been associated with um, uh, like anything from cholesterol uh, levels, oh. um, lipid development, which obesity. is fat, right? Yes, yes. Lipids are fats, <laughs> um, but they have so they have these sort of um, health implications, and these can either be physical or mental. So we might have um, increased rates of obesity, heart disease. Um, there's been some research that shows um, connection to autoimmune disorders, but then we also have effects on anxiety um, and mood as well. Oh, okay, interesting. 
Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about your specific research and what kind of the goal of your PhD is going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So at least for right now, um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a method where we can grow these sensory cells um, in our gut, these epithelial sensory cells, and have them grow together with our sensory neurons from the vagus nerve. Um, and so we want to see how they interact and learn a little bit more about the mechanism uh, behind their interaction, as well as how these sensory epithelial cells might be interacting with microbial species that might be associated with things like anxiety, autism spectrum disorder, um, and other sort of behavioral, uh, we call them phenotypes or <laughs> behavioral, uh, um, I guess just Like behaviors. a phenotype yeah. is, like a, is like the manifestation, right? Of, yeah, yeah. It's like a physical manifestation. Of the thing, the genetic coding or something, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, so uh, the vagus nerve, yes. this is something, you're testing the vagus nerve because that's the like highway that these electrical signals are being transferred on, is that? Yeah, yeah. So the um, vagus nerve is um, quite possibly the longest sensory nerve. Um, and it has been associated with like, appetite suppression, um, changes oh. in cognition. So there's already a lot of literature that sort of pinpoints the vagus nerve as one of the main methods in which um, we have that gut-brain access communication. Okay, so it's like this is, we're just going to try it in, in this new, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. these new cells, these new special cells, right? You're yeah. looking at a special... <laughs> yeah, and these very like specific cells in the gut. What do they look like? Uh, yeah, so the sensory epithelial cells that we look at are, they have this sort of like tall and they're described as like columnar in shape. So, so like a column, like tall? Yeah, yeah, like like a round? Greek column. They're kind of tall, kind of <laughs> thick, kind of chonky. Um, chonky. <laughs> maybe we should call them chonk cells. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I love that, chonk yeah, cells. Instead of sensory epithelial every time, let's just call them little our little chonk cells. Yeah, your little chonks. Okay, yeah. so you're studying your chonk cells. And you're yeah. trying to grow them together with neurons mm -hmm. in a in like a, a petri dish? Um, kind of, yeah. So we, we have these, essentially it's a petri dish. It's called a cell culture dish. Um, and so we don't grow them in tubes, but it's kind of the same phenomenon. We call this uh, growing things. We're doing an in vitro method. So mm -hmm. we've got things like in vivo, which means in a living organism, which okay. is not what we're trying to do, um, or in vitro, which means we're growing something and studying it in a test tube or in our case, in a cell culture plate. So just outside of the organism. Yes, outside mm -hmm. of the organism. So, and that, I mean, this sounds like really cool and kind of almost sci-fi-y, like growing, growing, um, nerves and neurons in a in a dish together so how do you how do you do that yeah yeah so we have it's quite a difficult process it's um, very delicate and something that you don't want to have drank too much caffeine for I usually <laughs> refrain from drinking any sort of caffeine in really the form of coffee hands. you want to have like the steadiest hands that you can possibly imagine um and so we basically uh, we'll conduct these dissections um, on mice, right? On Is mice, that... yes, yeah. So we will um, 
dissect the mouse brain or sort of the area around the brain. And we're looking for um, our specific area of the vagus nerve, the specific clump of cells, which we call a ganglia or a ganglion is, is this sort of clump of sensory cells. And so we're looking for our vagus nerve-associated ganglia, and it's very, very teeny. And <laughs> So can you see this with the naked eye, or do you yeah, have can to you, use like a microscope? Yeah, so, so you can barely see it with the naked eye. That always boggles <laughs> my mind that you can see cells with the naked eye. Like, that's just crazy. Yeah. But so, barely, right? Like, just to get yeah, a squint. Yeah, so, so these aren't like, it's like a clump of, it's like a ton of cells. Oh, I um, see. And so we're not really seeing like one cell. We're seeing just like a boatload a of mass. cells. A <laughs> mass. of cells. Um, and even a mass of cells is so obscenely teeny. Well, and it's coming from a, a teeny structure to begin yes, with, like yeah, a little mouse. Yeah, it's coming from a super small mouse. Um, and so because this process would be just unbelievably impossibly difficult um, if we were just using our naked eye. We do use, we call it a stereo microscope. And so it is a microscope that is specifically used for dissections. Um, so it allows us to get a better view, but it's not necessarily going to let you look at like one cell at a time or any sort of cellular structure. And it just kind of helps you zoom in. Is yeah. that is that yeah. different? What's Is stereo microscope the kind of microscope I'm thinking of, like when I was in high school looking through a slot, looking at a slide, a cell of something? Yeah, yeah. So the microscope that you're thinking of is what we call a, a compound microscope. Oh. And it um, allows you to see things with much greater magnification than a stereo microscope might. And we do eventually use what is essentially a compound microscope, but later on when we're trying to look at just our cells and how they're interacting. Got it. So that's how you get out the the, the neurons or the yeah. um, th that cell, that ganglion, as you called it. And mm -hmm. then what about the cells in the gut? So for the cells in the gut, uh, we actually don't need a stereo microscope because we're not trying to get a super tiny structure. We're instead trying to get that sort of upper area of the small intestine. We call it the proximal small intestine. And so we can do this with our naked eye, and it is fortunately for us, a much quicker and much easier <laughs> process, um, but it is also very time sensitive. So both of these processes are super time sensitive um, because the longer we take, the more cells are dying. And so mm -hmm. we want to try to get them out of the organism and into media, um, something that will allow them to grow and sort of mature and stay healthy. We want to get them in that environment as quickly as possible. Okay, but I want to first, I, I guess I'm still hung up on when you're trying to get these very, very small cells from the mm -hmm. brain, how do you know what you're, how do you know if you're getting the right cells or is, has someone said like, this is the area of the yeah, brain? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are, are Fortunately, a lot of people that um, can point us in the right direction. So we work with someone in the vet med department, okay. veterinary medicine department, uh, who has been just absolutely lovely and super helpful in helping point us in the right direction of what ganglia are we looking at. Um, because there's different ones. You're looking at the ones that are trying to accept a sensory information yeah. rather than give out sensory information. We're, we're looking for those that are involved in sort of like processing and sending that sensory information. Okay, so um, specific ganglion, ganglia. Yeah. 
because we do have other types of ganglion um, that are or ganglia, such as um, we would consider them motor. Oh, okay, motor right, like ganglia or like the muscles. Nerve. Yeah, and so um, those are yeah much more involved in like reflexes and um, in sort of a different pathway. And so those aren't going to be interacting with our sensory cells to transmit signals. So we want to avoid those as much as possible. So you're basically going into like a little, you're, you're pulling out your uh, mouse atlas, brain atlas. Yeah. And then going on and getting the right page. And that's how you know where those cells are. Yeah. Sort of mapped out. <laughs> it's um, an atlas composed of a lot of drawings and <laughs> um, diagrams and other literature and so many videos. Because the way that we're approaching it is... Videos? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's like our, other people. They're showing yeah. you the road, <laughs> Just the scenery. Absolutely lovely individuals out there who have been kind enough to include videos in their publications. Interesting. And I think this is a good point or a good time to mention that while you're, you're talking about a couple of the resources out there, there are mm-hmm. not that many people out there. There's not that many labs out there trying to do the work that you're doing, right? Yeah. So unfortunately, there are uh, very few labs out there who are conducting similar research. And so it does make it um, more difficult to have resources. So even though I say there's a ton of resources, um, compared to other fields of study, we are very limited. So for instance, the way that we're approaching this dissection is going sort of from the top of the head, where we're going um, and opening up the skull and trying to kind of get our nerve from the inner part of the skull. And um, it can be pretty difficult because a, a lot of times we will see that other labs who are trying to do similar work will go in through the neck instead, um, oh. which is also quite difficult. Um, but we kind of made the decision to do this other method because we had more individuals in the area who were more specialized in that method. And, and it seems to me that you sort of have this, it's kind of a blessing and a good or bad thing that because so few people are doing this, yeah. you're you're drawing this map. You are figuring yeah. this out as you go, this sort of innovative work that you're doing. And I imagine that there are some roadblocks involved yes. in, in kind of discovering a new way of doing things, right? Yeah, yeah. There's just a ton of troubleshooting, um, which can be a little discouraging sometimes. Like you have these moments of like excitement where you go in to view your cells under the microscope and you're like, there's so many and they look so healthy and this is so incredible. And then, you know, the next time you try it, we have no success and you don't see any cell growth. And it can be pretty discouraging because there's so many variables that haven't been well studied that it's difficult to pinpoint where exactly did we go wrong? Like what exactly is changing that is having such an impact on our cells. So that means you are having trouble just even growing these cells, like <laughs> step one. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at. Step one, get the cells to grow consistently. Right, because so you can, can't, can how, can study. You, how can you do in vitro experimentation without even having the cells, right? Yeah, I mean, we could do the experimentation, we just might not have cells, <laughs> which is what happens. And so... What is, what is success defined by here? Yeah. 
Um, so success for our um, epithelial sensory cells, our chunky cells, um, <laughs> is pretty easy to visualize. We can, we have sort of like fluorescently, we call it fluorescently tagging our cells. We have um, taken genetically modified mice uh, and those are the ones that we use for our experiments. And they have the ability to glow this green color. We call it EGFB. Whoa. Um, but yeah. the, 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 the mice grow, glow? No, or? no, not, not the mice. Yeah, it's like not a like green a, radioactive not, mouse? Yeah, not like a, some otherworldly monster. No, um, Get bit by it, so, turn into mouse girl. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we... <clears throat> sorry. Uh, we have this... So we're looking specifically for the cells that are glowing this green color. Um, the ch- so just the chonk cells just that the are green. Cells. Yeah, and so um, that green color is only exhibited by cells that are secreting this thing called cholecystokinin. And um, that doesn't really matter to you all, but it's just something that our cells that we're targeting have the ability to secrete to make. Oh. And so other cells uh, in our sort of target area will likely not be making this product. And so if we're only <laughs> looking for those cells that secrete that specific product, it's easy to tell because they're going to be the only cells that are glowing this green color. Oh, um, all our other cells are just not visible under that gl- fluorescent light. So they have this kind of this fluorescent marker it's like a little flag that they wave that says hey i'm right here yeah yeah it's like they're wearing like the brightest orange shirt at the party (laughs) except that shirt happens to be green and and, um so that means you guys you are getting in your experiments uh these mice that are specially kind of made or Mm -hmm. or modified right to like be better at doing this right have it has more green shirts at the market (laughs) yeah it's it's more like they're they have been made so that they have green shirts. Um, oh. So they don't necessarily have more green shirts. It's just that we've chosen these mice because they have abil- the ability to have, you know, green shirt wearing cells. But that but that green protein that is put in there is a, a genetic modification that humans have done, right? They, they yes. don't they don't yes. glow in the dark. No, no, it's wild. not something that's found <laughs> naturally. I this see. is something that has been selected for. For research um, purposes. Yeah, and... and the mouse has been modified okay. for these for, for these reasons. Got it. Mm-hmm. So so just to kind of backtrack a little bit, we have mm-hmm. neurons. Yes. Or your ganglion. We yes. have uh, cells wearing green shirts. <laughs> and you grow them both. And then you grow them together. Yeah. Well, first, wait, what, what do you grow them in? Yeah, how do you <laughs> even grow them once they're outside the mouse? That's a great question. Yeah, so we uh, grow them in... Um, we call it media. Whoa, what um, media? Yeah, yeah, not like, not like you know, like right now we're consuming media in the, the form the of media. radio. We are the media. Um, <laughs> media, what? Not that kind of media. Um, it's really just, it's this, um, uh, it's like, in our case, it's a liquid that has sort of nutrients and growth factors that are, allow our cells to... Um, to basically grow and survive. So it's like providing the ideal environment for our cells to grow. And it's trying to mimic the environment 
that these cells are naturally found in. So um, our media that we've selected is created so that it mimics an environment that promotes neuronal activity and neuronal maturity. And if we were to use another less fit media, we might not have as much success growing our cells. So it's really kind of a a trial and error thing almost. You have to figure out what the factors that your specific cells need Mm -hmm. are and then give them to them and see if that helps them grow. There's no recipe book for like, this is the media for this cell. There's a a little bit of a a recipe book in the form of just like other literature. Um, So we've kind of formulated what our media is going to include based on um, what we've seen other literature has had success with. So we know that we need like one specific growth factor that it's like entire purpose is to be something that promotes growth. Right. Um, (laughs) And so we're looking for that. But then Well named. I know. Yeah. Also, I, not a great description on my end. <laughs> I feel like the the growth, this media is, to me, it kind of reminds me of, like, Neo from The Matrix. Oh, yeah. When he's, yeah. like, in the actual Matrix and he's in those pods and he's in that, like, goop. Yeah, yeah. Our media is that goop and our cells are <laughs> Neo growing in a pod. Yeah, it's definitely a very similar case, except our cells, unfortunately, don't live in a pod or in media for ridiculous time. And maybe we're not in the matrix or... We are not in the matrix. (laughs) I would love if my cells could live for like years and years and years. But unfortunately, they I can barely get them to live a day. Aren't there cells that like like cells that live forever? I feel like I've read things. This is just like on research. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I would love for my cells to be able to live forever, but unfortunately they don't. Um, So our cells are what we call primary cells. So they're, um, or like from a primary cell line. So they are taken directly from the organism. And what's really different about them. Like when you do your little atlas of the brain. Yeah, yeah. So we take them directly from our mouse. And what defines what is a primary cell is it has a sort of like finite timeline. Um, So they have a certain amount of times that they can divide before they reach a point, which we call senescence, um, where they can't divide anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But then we've got other cells that we call immortal cells um, or an immortalized line. uh, And they're, you know, they're basically like if Neo stayed in the pod. Um, They have the ability to keep on dividing indefinitely. And so that makes those sorts of cells uh, much easier to work with. Sometimes you have the issue of they keep growing. So now you have so many cells and I'm over here like I have like three cells. (laughs) Give me some of those cells. I wish I had that problem. I know. I've read the book Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So I'm assuming that this is. Yeah, that's exactly what those sorts of cells are. Yeah. Yeah. So a a lot of times these immortal cell lines come from uh, like stem cell lines oh. or uh, in the case of Henrietta Lacks, they came from cancerous cervical tissue. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But that isn't what you do, right? You no, don't no, work with no. these sorts of... As far as we know, our our mouse, our mice are cancer-free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so. glowing. 
and, and, the, and the reason those kind of work is because cancer cells, that's part of the whole thing with cancer is the cells keep dividing yes, infinitely yeah. and they have this right. capability. Mm-hmm. And I just learned the other day that um, Henrietta, Henrietta Lacks' family is suing Thermo Fisher for... Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Thermo Fisher is the it's a scientific company that yeah. does the cells. And they, yeah. they do produce her cells um, that were taken without her knowledge. So mm-hmm. if anyone out there has not read the book, uh, The it's Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's so good. Literally everyone in this room has read this I book. Yeah. And it is so good. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> completely off topic, but so read this book. 100% have read the book. If you are just now tuning in, uh, you are listening to KBVR. And this is Inspiration Dissemination, and we're chatting with Caroline Hernandez from the Department of Microbiology. Um, so I, just because we got to get the show moving a little bit here, mm-hmm. um, we've talked a lot about your current research and, and what you're doing now, but how did you get to this point? Uh, you have a little bit of a interesting and, and fascinating kind of backstory here. Yeah, so um, I actually started off not even as a science person. I... Um, started my academic career in community college as a studio art major, where a lot of my work was focused on creating what we call um, uh, installation art. So I was really interested in creating art where uh, how individuals interacted with that art, how that played out, they could touch my art, they could hear my art. And so I was really interested in this sort of interaction. But ultimately, Art wasn't for me. Um, I was luckily quite skilled at it, but I felt like it wasn't sort of hitting these other creative spots that I really wanted. So I ultimately switched to biology. I feel <laughs> like your art, though, is like the sensory cells. Yeah, yeah. I just I kind of moved from creating art that was interested in the interactions of art between people to just studying interactions again you but kind of within yeah. microbes and cells yeah yeah I was like oh this is too big better get microscopic <laughs> yeah yeah too macro here <laughs> yeah too big um but yeah so I um was able to complete my work at my community college the college of Lake County in Grays Lake Illinois shout out to them the Lancets <laughs> before transferring to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign where I continued my studies um, as a molecular and cellular biology major and um, there I in the beginning thought things were going well was having a pretty good time but I was definitely prioritizing my academics over a lot of unaddressed mental health concerns. And I think I had the mentality of, I just need to make it through and and things will be fine. And eventually things weren't fine. Mm. Right, and like the pressure just kept building up. It was like, just too much. Uh, and so, and, and unfortunately I didn't have a lot of um, sort of like a social support network. Uh-huh. And so I was just kind of keeping this all in, I feel like it's really difficult, especially in an environment where you're expected to graduate in four years. And I already felt like I was behind on my timeline. I was trying to do everything, but I had these mental health concerns that I needed to express and needed to address in an environment that was not conducive with that. And so ultimately, um, I had a great therapist at my university at U of I that 
really provided the space and the encouragement for me to medically withdraw and take the time I needed to heal and to really address those concerns that I had just kind of put on the back burner. I I feel like the this pressure is obviously not unique to you and and I also feel like there's this concept that somehow like you're talking about being behind like going to community college somehow like makes you not (laughs) I don't know real student or something but that's crazy yeah yeah I think a lot of times I feel that individuals think that they need to fit into the sort of ideal student timeline where you know you go to a four-year institution you graduate. Even calling it a four-year institution, yes, right? Like it's that's, called a four-year institution. In yeah. There, yeah, and like, how many of us actually do finish in the four years? I didn't. And, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I definitely didn't. Um, but I was surprised when I did decide to medically withdraw. I felt a lot of shame and guilt, like I had failed. And I know others in my life who have been in very similar situations. And I think I felt that way up until, well, even even when I was turning in my withdrawal application, I, I felt that great sense of shame. But I remember that when I got there, turned in my package, there was like four other people oh waiting God. to turn in their packages. And, you know, I didn't even know that medically withdrawing was even an option until I had gotten to the point where I had no other options. Mm. Yes, you're like super struggling. Yeah, yeah. And all the stress. Yeah, I was, I got to a point where I was like, I don't know if I can, you know, I can survive going on like this. And I think even to the people around me, it had become clear that that was the case. And so to have to get to that point, to be informed of this resource of medically withdrawing, um, and to think that I was the only one up until, you know, I got there and there's four other people, you know, right. within five minutes who are also doing the same thing, who are needing that space and that time to heal. Yeah. And it, it, it makes it interesting, too, that like that's the option. Yeah. <laughs> that it's not. Yeah. Let's try to help you str- while you're struggling and defray this. It's a it's not just it's not you. It's sort of the system is. Yeah, yeah. This is a baked-in thing. It's yeah. It's it's unfortunately it's um, very much a sort of like you know you gotta pull yourself by your bootstraps, yeah. silly mentality of like you just have to kind of fight through it. And um, even in academia, like how many times do we glorify struggling? Or like staying having crazy hours and not yeah. sleeping. Right. It's almost yeah. like a badge of honor to be in the lab yes. until yeah. two in the morning. And yeah. yeah. And I, and I think that's probably and have no social life and yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, that's probably why my mental health um, issues were just unaddressed for so long is I was sort of giving these like semi joking cries of help of like being asked, Oh, Caroline, how do you do all of this? And I was like, I cry a lot and I barely sleep. <laughs> and they'd be like, no, really, how? <laughs> and you're like, no, but really, please. Um, and and so I think that that was one of the main reasons why, or at least one of the reasons why no one cared to sort of step in earlier because, mm-hmm. you know, I was looking successful. So obviously I couldn't be struggling when right. that was absolutely not the case. Um, so you took your medical withdrawal and... Yeah. Did you, 
you eventually went back to finish your degree. Did mm-hmm. you, what did you feel um, that time kind of allowed you to, yeah. to do and yeah. made you prepared, I guess, for this? So I um, took about three years off. Wow. Which was definitely, you know, I thought I was going to take one semester off, but, mm. you know, I, I love that saying, like, healing is not linear. Mm. So yeah. that's, there, that's were, great, yeah. there were times where I really felt like I'm getting better, things are going well, and you know, something happens and all of a sudden I'm back to square one. Right. Um, or uh, even the process of getting back to school was quite difficult. So I had reached a point where I felt, okay, I've taken the time. I've put in so much effort to, you know, develop great coping mechanisms and develop a great support system. And so I felt like I'm ready and I'm excited to go back to school and it was just so difficult to really like yeah at the from like from the schools per, like to get into school it was hard to get back yeah, in yeah it was You're like it was, i want to learn yeah it was it was hard to get back to school yeah i was really excited i was like i'm i'm ready to go yeah and um one of the major difficulties was that when i medically withdrew I no longer received student health insurance. Oh. Um, and unfortunately, you know, oftentimes our student health insurance is better than the insurance our parents have. Right. And so I was not able to, you know, I couldn't see the clinician I was looking, I, I was like seeing before. I couldn't even get my prescription medication that I took um, for oh. my mental health. Um, and... I couldn't afford a lot of the therapies and treatments out there. To um, me, the fact that you are sitting in front of us today speaks to the like profound, the depth of your resilience. Yeah to, yeah. to have gone through that. I mean, not even being able to like see a therapist or get back into school when you want to. Yeah, it was difficult. And I feel like a lot of people are in my shoes and we just mm-hmm. don't know it. Um, and people don't talk about it. Yeah. yeah like. Yeah. You know, going to therapy is amazing, but it's not a privilege all of us can afford. Yeah. And so a lot of times this healing takes so much longer because you're having to put the work in all by yourself. Right. And and one thing with getting back to school is you need documentation. And uh, when you can barely afford to see a therapist and to get documentation, you have to see a therapist five times wow right that is incredibly difficult um and they have very stringent timelines so they make it easy to leave but hard to get back in right yeah and i mean definitely easier easier to leave um but even then unfortunately sometimes there are students who do want to medically withdraw before things start getting really bad and they're trying to be proactive and they get told by their academic institution you know you actually seem okay enough Mm. to keep going another semester uh you know allowing them to maybe get worse Uh uh-huh you're not in active crisis mode right now so obviously you're okay you're not bad enough yeah it's it's sort of like instead of preventing the fire we're letting the fire happen until we have an entire blazing inferno (laughs) and then we're like oh (laughs) Maybe we should get some water. <laughs> <laughs> this bucket, will this work? So, yeah. so you re-enrolled and um, faced some barriers 
to to that process and then what and then um did you find supportive individuals along the way um yeah how did you I guess make it from that point to the end of then your degree yeah um so I thought that the process of getting back in school was probably going to be the most difficult um and unfortunately when I did uh re-enroll that wasn't entirely the case Mm. so I had some advisors, uh, some students, even some family members who really doubted that I could finish. Or when I told them, you know, I'm interested in grad school. I think, I think that's what I want to do. Yeah. They were like, Oh, um, maybe, but like, what about these mental health concerns? Can you actually like do it? Can, how are you going to be certain that you're not going to get worse again? Mm. Or, um, you know, maybe not grad school. Maybe have you considered like an internship, which no problems with internships, but it was really. Well, it's not what you wanted to do. Yeah. Like you yeah. had your heart set on grad the school. The message was, you know, you probably can't get in. Uh, so wow. maybe try all these other things instead. And this was coming from people like your academic advisors, like people yeah. are, who are supposed to be helping you achieve yeah. these goals. Yeah, I, I fortunately went to a school where I had more than one advisor option. So I had a lot of advisors who weren't helpful. I did have one. He was great. <laughs> and uh, So I there's a small silver, silver lining. Yeah, but- one out of like 10 advisors <laughs> was, was a great person. But did you just have one person that was helping you or did you have... No, no. So um, another person, I I credit her greatly with my decision to go to grad school with honestly what I enjoy researching and really motivating my research interests and also being very open about my difficulties in sort of like addressing my mental health status and uh, accepting my disability status as well. Um, and her name is Layla. Layla Shin. Oh, go Layla. Do you know if she's listening tonight? Uh, I hope so. Go Layla. <laughs> I, told La- I told her I'd send her um, the link via Instagram. Also, if you have Instagram, at nutrition. Can I plug that? Sure, yeah, but Shin, right? S-H-I-N. Yes, so N-U-T-R-I-S-H-I-N-N, nutrition. And, and she was a PhD student? Yeah, yeah. So Layla, she still is um, okay. currently a PhD student in the nutrition and dietetics department at the University of Illinois, and um, she was my uh, mentor at the lab where I conducted my undergraduate research. And other than being just like an absolutely bomb human being, <laughs> <laughs> Layla was really open about her mental health as well, mm. and ah. um, really encouraged a space where if I needed to take a mental health day, if I was struggling, if I, you know, needed a breather, I was encouraged to take that breather. Um, And even outside of mental health, she also really challenged me to, you know, conduct uh, literature reviews and really explore the topic and uh, giving me independence to Mm. conduct research. And also was the main person who told me like, I should consider applying for a PhD. I love the idea of women supporting women, or, yeah. at, least, or at least having a support a support yeah. network. And yeah. you're in a you're in a lab of women now, mostly, yeah. mostly yeah. women. Mostly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's actually one of the reasons why I selected my lab is 
um, really the people that were in it, these, for the most part, really strong, incredible women who, when I first spoke to them, um, emphasized an environment in which there was always support. Uh. And I felt like at other universities that I had interviewed, that wasn't always the case, um, where it was more about results and doing your research, which is important, but it wasn't, there, there was no answer for my question of, well, what happens when mm. I'm not getting results? What happens if I need support? Or if well, I have questions or I'm having a bad day? Like, yeah. what is there for that? And uh, in the David lab, it was just like, well, there's a great group of people who are going to be there for you. And one thing that I always like to say is that grad school is going to be hard. It's, it's challenging. It is pushing the limits of human knowledge uh, and so that is hard in and of itself, and it shouldn't be made harder by a difficult environment. You should have support from your advisor, from your lab mates, from your department. And it's it's really good to hear that you've found that. And being in the same lab as you, I can I can testify that that's been my experience as well. And and it's just so important for having a a more positive graduate experience, sure. I think. And you yeah. also spent all that time on yourself. Like you knew what you wanted. To, you knew that this is what you wanted. You wanted yeah. a lab that you could say, hey, I'm not doing well today or like I'm not getting yeah. the results. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I had I had three years of really having to support myself alone. Yeah. Of like having to be my own support system and my own cheerleader. And it I wanted an environment where that wasn't always the case. I didn't I didn't want to be alone in my journey. Um <laughs> I think uh, there is like a professor in the microbiology department who always says like that compares your PhD journey to the fellowship in <laughs> Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I was like, wait, yeah. fellowship? Lord yes, yes. But you have to like you have to have like your fellowship, like your your group of people uh, who will support you in your journey. But you're on the your only quest. one that can take the ring to Mordor. It's true. You're yeah. the only one that can do your PhD, but you have to have a Sam. You have to have yeah. a Gandalf. Yes, a Sam. I need my Samwise. Everyone needs a Samwise. <laughs> and I'm fortunate enough to have just a ton of Sams. <laughs> <laughs> a whole lab and, and, and circle full of Sams. Yeah. Well, Caroline, this has been this has amazing. Been so good. Yeah. Um, if you've listened to the show, you know that we have two traditions that we like to end the show with. And I think you've given a lot of great advice kind of inadvertently through this interview. But uh, we do like to end with one piece of advice um, that you would give to either your past self, uh, undergraduate students, other graduate students, pretty much just anyone who will give a piece of advice to someone out there. Yeah, um, I think my piece of advice for past current me, for pretty much any anyone in my life is... Um, to not be afraid of giving yourself the time and grace and space to allow yourself to heal um, and to not let anyone in your life or in your academic institution um, get in the way of that or discourage you from, you know, pursuing that healing process. That is that is great advice. And just for any of our listeners who are also students here at Oregon State, we do want to plug in this instance that there is mental health help available here at OSU. 
We have the Counseling and Psychological Support Program, CAPS, um, which offers individual counseling, crisis counseling, as well as group skill building uh, groups. Um, And so if you find yourself struggling with your mental health, with your academics, you do not need to suffer in silence. You do not need to suffer alone. I think that getting the help you need before there is a crisis can really go a long way. And your student fees cover this service, so it's covered. Yeah. So if you're a student, if you're a student, which is an experience (laughs) we had before. Um, And then our second tradition is our guest picks an outro song. So can you please tell us the song you picked and why you picked it? Yeah. So the song I picked is in Spanish. It's called Lucha de Gigantes by Nacho Pop. And um, it is a song that is um, trying to tell a story of dealing with your sort of mental health demons and the courage that it takes to, you know, try to face those demons and to overcome your mental health struggles um, while still very much embracing them. Beautiful. Beautiful. And with that, here is uh, Nacha Pop. I probably butchered that. No, that is correct. Lucha de Gigantes. Thank you for listening. And you've been listening to KBBR Inspiration Dissemination. Tune in next week. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline, and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.